Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family business and entrepreneurs. This is our 152nd show. Today's desk is Marty Groover, author of Speed of Advance. Uh, Marty, welcome. And I want to say thank you uh, as you were a lieutenant commander in the Navy, and we greatly appreciate your service. Hey, Mark, great to be here today. And it was my pleasure. Believe me, I enjoyed every minute of the being in the Navy and serving our country. Oh, you can tell that in the book. Uh, I think you missed the Navy. <laughs> I do. Once in a while, I'll dream I'm still in it. But yeah, it, it definitely was a, a great time in my life. So let, let's talk first about your background. Why don't you give the audience uh, about your professional background? Sure. So I started out in the Navy as an E1 enlisted. And uh, I was going to college, didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I, I lived in Florida at the time and the Space Coast was getting ready to take off, you know, in the mid 80s with uh the space shuttle. So I got some advice from the people, go get advanced electronics, you know, you get a good job out there. Well, lo and behold, I got in the Navy and really just loved it and um, got advanced, you know, electronic engineering training, working on weapon systems. Loved it so much. After a few years of being enlisted, I went officer, was very successful and and got to um, be in charge of the Aegis weapon system, a systems test officer. So basically, I was the chief engineer over a very complicated weapon system. And uh, it really changed, you know, how I, I thought about systems and thought about making things work together and understanding, you know, the whole picture together, creating a common operational picture. Um, we we did a lot of interesting things uh, on that ship. And then I was deployed to Kuwait for a year with the Marines, which again, working um, in large deliberate planning systems, uh, delivering a lot of ordnance to the Marines. Um, and then I finished up my career on the John F. Kennedy Strike Group as the C5I officer. And that's really where I started thinking systematic approach. And our company, C5MI, uh, came from that as command control, computers, communication, collaboration, and intelligence in the military, we change it to management insights, really, how do we make everything work together live in a common operational picture to drive better business outcomes. So we liked it so much. I worked at Caterpillar for 12 years when I retired in manufacturing, worked with ERP systems, integrated operational technology on the shop floor um, for industry 4.0 type technology, Loved it enough that uh, some crazy executives, and, and you'll appreciate this as an entrepreneur, said, hey, we can do this better. We can start our own business. And five years ago, well, actually seven years ago, they started. I've been here for five years. Um, we started C5 in mind. We're still plugging along, um, helping customers really understand how to leverage uh, you know, the industri next industrial revolution technology to drive better business outcomes. So before we start talking about the book, I'd like to know what was the best part of being in the Navy? Because throughout the book, you really love the Navy. You know, the best part of it, honestly, was firing the big guns and missiles. I enjoyed that a lot. But no, it's it's really the leadership and the camaraderie and working with the people um, that I had working with me in the Navy. 
uh, I, you just can't replace that kind of um, focus on mission and what we were doing. I just just enjoyed that atmosphere of always uh, working with teams and, and working with people. You know, everybody used to ask me, it must have been great being an officer. You just told people what to do and they did it. Uh, couldn't be farther from the truth in the military. We had uh, great people, great leaders. And, you know, it's just that interaction and, and developing people and bringing them up through the ranks. I really enjoyed that part of it. Uh, what was the most challenging part? I think probably the most challenging part was really taking the strategic goals and, and turning them into daily executions. And that, you know, when we talk about this, the name of the book, Speed of Advance, it is about translating. And that's what you did as officer. What's the strategic plan every day that I have to execute to, uh, you know, execute the mission of the nation, the mission of the Navy? And how do we translate it down to the lowest level so that everybody in the chain of command understands the mission and is focused on it? Uh, is there something that the and, and we're going to get right into the book? Is there something that people would be surprised to know about the Navy? I think that people would be surprised to know how much autonomy that people have at different levels in the military. I think everybody that hasn't been in the military thinks it's very rigid, very structured. But I found even corporate world was more rigid and structured as far as how um you know, the bureaucracy works. We expected people to operate on their own, execute according to plan without us telling them what to do. If I, if as an officer, if I had to tell my team what to do every day, we would have failed. And and they really had the autonomy to execute um, their business processes every day to execute the mission. Uh, so let's get into the book. Why did you write this book and why this particular title? Well, as I said, um, in the military, I'm not sure I appreciated everything that I was trained to do and experienced uh, until I got to uh, Caterpillar and worked in the commercial world uh, in manufacturing. And again, very similar missions. We have, uh, you know, production targets we got to hit. We have to do things. And you have to, every day you got to execute. Every day you have to execute on the mission. And what it what I started liking it to there's a term called speed of advance. So when you're officer of the deck and you're driving a ship every day you have a plan to drive to someplace. You're not just normally punching holes in the water. You have a mission you have to get to. So you have a plan track of where you're going to navigate to and what speed you need to go at. And the speed of that ship is very critical to managing the resources. And, and the most people wouldn't think of the Navy being lean, but we measure everything because we're out in the middle of the ocean. We don't have resources. We just can't pull up to a gas station and get more gas. So we have to be very stringent on how we use our resources. So we try to stay at the most economical speed. And that speed of advance is actual versus plan every day. So if we've got to get ahead of it because we've got to do some drills or whatever we got to do that we may need time. It was about constantly measuring where you're at. And that's the way I translated it to meeting our goals at Caterpillar for production, for quality, for safety. These were all things that you had to measure that actual versus plan every day, and then figure out how are you going to be as lean as possible to improve those outcomes based off the plan. So that that's what drove me to write the book, the, those experiences. And I, and I said, you know, I'm working with customers every day to try to understand how do I converge people, process, and technology in the best way to get better business outcomes. And based off what I saw in the military, I used it at Caterpillar. I used all those experiences. It was very successful. So that's what drove me to write the book. I said, this is really important to think about that strategy 
um, before you start applying technology to your business, because if you're just going to go out and buy best of breed technology and put it, put it into your business and think you're going to get a silver bullet, it's this is not the way it works, right? Like you've really got to understand the strategy of people and your processes and then how you're going to use technology to create those capabilities that you need. Um, Isn't that, that transformation? It's not the problem in corporate America, right? People feel like they don't get the whole picture and they're only being told they're part of it. But you're saying people are told the whole picture so they understand where they fit in and what they need to support. Exactly. Every day, the way we communicate in the military, the way people are trained, they understand the picture as well as the leaders do. What am I supposed to do? Not just, hey, go down and push this button and do this. They have to because you never know when they they may be running the whole mission, depending on what happens with their leaders. They've got to be able to pick up the baton, so to speak, and keep running with it. And that's the way you know the military is set up to run. Uh, what and you and you've been talking about this now, but what is the speed of advanced methodology? So again, it's a measurement. How do you measure yourself? And, you know, speed of advance is just one of the measurements on a ship, but a lot of things are runoff from that based off our SOA, which is every day the captain comes to rigs. What's our SOA? He wants to know what is the speed we need to meet. So ideally you keep it right around 12 to 13 knots. That's the most economical way. So in your business, everything is measured that way, whether it's safety, quality, velocity. When you produce a product, and I don't care whether it's a service or whether it's a product, you plan to spend this much to sell that product. And this is how much it takes, you know, with your cost of goods sold and your and your absorption and all that to create it. But how do you know that you're actually meeting that? How do you know, you know, whether you're winning or losing? So really speed of advanced methodology, irrespective of the measurement is what's my plan? What What's my expectation out of a process? And what am I actually delivering? Because if I'm not delivering uh, what my plan is, I'm probably losing money or I'm losing engagement with people or I'm losing my customer because they're I'm not delivering what I'm supposed to deliver. Can any size company uh, for profit or nonprofit use this methodology? Yes, I believe so. If you don't, if you start a business and you don't understand what you need to make to cover your costs, your cash flow and all that, if you're not measuring these key things, you're not going to um, be in business long and I don't care what size your business is, but it's really understanding what are the critical requirements of your business, whether it's customer satisfaction, whether it's quality or product or, or the services that you're delivering, how fast you're delivering them to meet your demand. Um, those key measurements are going to show you how your business is running. If you don't understand them, then you're probably not going to be successful. Yeah. And it's funny, everything uh, when venture capitalists are investing or private equity, everything's about numbers. Everything's about understanding all these different outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. You just can't uh, operate. And that's why today's leader needs to really understand the speed of advance. Uh, I was wondering after reading your book, which talks about the Navy's constant planning and advance and procedures, is there ever time they go off script or try something that has never been tried before? Sort of like pivoting when you think you need to make a course correction outside of a situation where you're fighting? Absolutely. It happens all the time. So deliberate planning is very important because you have a foundational plan. You understand everybody's roles, supported groups, supporting groups. Now, that is the playbook. And we all know the minute. And I think, you know, we talked about this before. There's a great quote about Mike Tyson. They're all great game plans to get the first punch in the mouth. But it's the same thing 
in war fighting. I mean, you make these plans, you know what you're supposed to do, you, you train to that. And then the minute, you know, the first round goes off or the first combat happens, those plans can get altered quickly. But it's that foundational training that allows you to pivot. It allows you to, to look at the situation. And if you have the best intelligence or the best live data, you're going to, your situational awareness is going to be better. And then you can pivot off, you know, your plans and, and they call them branch plans. Now you create a new branch plan, but it's still based on that foundational training. And the key thing is all the people up and down the chain of command, we call it deliberate planning, which means if this event happens, you go ahead and execute this plan irrespective. You don't have to ask permission. The expectation is you act. And I think that's where our military is so strong up and down the chain of command. People are, are pre-authorized to make are and expected to make decisions and adjust the battle plan or, or whatever the plan is, training plan, whatever it is. When things pop up, like they always do, Murphy's Law, they're going to pop up. And now you've got to make a decision. People don't just sit around and say, what do I do? They make a decision, they pivot, and they move based off all that tr previous training and planning that we had in place. You know, I, I read books about other militaries, but it sounds like Israel has the closest to our military in terms of how they operate, where people in the front are making the decisions, not in the back. And I read uh, that uh, one by this Israeli general that said that Egyptians had great fighters, but everything was made in the back. So by the time they were ready to throw a punch, we already moved out of the way. That's right. That's right. And and when you look at the different doctrines around the world, the Egyptians were more aligned with the Soviets. And that's why they're that way. The leaders make the decisions and, and the people at the lower levels aren't allowed to make that decision. And I think that Israelis absolutely have trained with them quite a bit. They're they're awesome on their feet and they, because they they're in constant war and they have to make decisions every day and they don't have the time um, to go back and ask for permission. And I think that's critical. One of the things I always say. Where does the undercover boss go when he, when he does a show? They don't go to, you know, the, sh the shop or the stores leadership and ask them what's going on. They get undercover and they go down to the lower level and they see what's really happening. And that's where the empowerment at the right levels and, and what I saw in the military and what I try to do in my own factories, empower those people with the right data and the right tools. Again, that convergence of people, process and technology and have them drive your business because if they drive it and they understand what they're doing, you're going to get better business outcomes than if um, you rely on leaders that have day old data, two days old data, and they're not, you know, they're always in reactive mode instead of being proactive. Yeah. I read um, Startup Nation. It's a great book about Israel and hence why they have so many great entrepreneurs is because the military train, they all yep. credit the military training with making them adaptable and uh, pivoting when they had to pivot and, you know, the proof is there. So many phenomenal companies have come out. And we've had a lot of people create great companies who went through the military system as well. Yeah. So when you left the Navy and went to work in the private sector, what teachings and procedures did you take from the Navy that you implemented in your private sector job? Well, I think the first thing that helped me was people first, mission always. You always take care of your people in the military, always worried about what's going on um, with those people on the front line. And that's the way I kind of approached what I did in manufacturing. So I had to go in and learn a whole new world, but it really wasn't that new. It was the same thing. There was assembly and fabrication manufacturing. I was responsible for paint booths and things like that. 
But I knew that the people on the shop floor were going to make or break me. So I was a manufacturing engineer. Those people that were assembling and putting together, you know, the Caterpillar products for us, I needed them. They were part of the team. And by leveraging that that type of mentality of going to them, asking their opinion, which, hey, in a union shop, you know, the, I had a lot of eyebrows raised, like, why are you spending so much time on a shop floor? I said, because I'm going to learn from those people how this stuff works so that we can, you know, get better business outcomes. And I use that implementing all sorts of technologies and new processes with the people on the floor. And I was, I was much more successful by including them and their thoughts into those solutions than just going out and trying to jam them in, if that makes sense. And that was probably my biggest superpower that I had um, from the military. Uh, You write, it isn't enough to have a goal. You have to know your speed of advance. What do you mean by this? Well, and this is where, again, I took strategic goals from the from the military, things that we had to execute, whether it was actual war, which, you know, I had quite a bit of war planning that I had to do for the second Gulf War and, and other things that we were involved with um, in Kosovo. But it's no different than having a strategic plan. I've got to hit, you know, my P&L numbers. I've got to hit my quality numbers. I got to hit my safety numbers. How do you take those strategic goals and then translate them into a measurement that makes sense for the people at the level? Because just saying to somebody on the shop floor, hey, I got to hit a quality goal of this defects per unit. Okay, great. How do I do that? What's my part of that? And, And I think that's where the speed of advance comes in. At what level from shop floor to top floor do you make a measurement that somebody says, oh, I can own that measurement. I understand it. And I'm going to be part of it. And and then and they feel like now they're part of the business. They understand. They have clarity. And that's the I think that's probably the most powerful thing in the world is I believe people want to do a good job. I've always been a theory X, theory Y person. If you give them the right information and help them understand at their level, sort of like the undercover boss, what their part of it is and how important it is to the business and make them seem as just as important as me as a factory manager or anybody else to the to the business then it really makes a difference and that's where speed of advance at all levels really drives um the outcomes that you're looking for it's funny when i've run to organizations i would tell the maintenance people receptionists all the people why they were important and if they didn't do this job the other people couldn't possibly succeed and people never really talk to those people about why, how important they are in the system. They just feel like everybody looks past them. But I think it's smart. I'm sure your book uh, is getting a lot of play in the Navy itself, right? I'm sure they must have bought a lot of copies. Is The other thing that impresses me about our military service is a lot of our generals have PhDs, which really uh, surprised me. You were seeing smarter and smarter people at the top and their PhDs are usually in something strategic and process oriented. Why why is that? Well, one thing is the military. And again, I haven't been in, I don't want to make any claims, but when I was in the military, you as an officer, you're, and even senior enlisted, you're always expected to learn more. It's a learning organization. So you get that next degree, you get that next um, certificate or that training because it makes you better as a leader but it also helps you execute in the missions. So, you know, that that education, I, it's, I've always been amazed to see how people apply the education they have to. It's not like 
in the military, people have degrees, but it's, but it's not just, Hey, I've got this degree, you know, as a, as a badge, it's like, how do I apply that training? And when you look at our service schools and you look at postgraduate schools that we have in the military, we invest in people's training. Every time I, I got a new job in the, in the Navy, I was an officer. I still had to go through a pipeline of schools to go to that level, even though I, th- I thought I, I was knowledgeable enough. The Navy made sure that if you're going to go into this role, you're going to be prepared. In the book, you write about the importance of automation, having people do jobs that require intelligence and creativity to solve problems, which you've been talking a lot about today. Are you worried that AI will take over the function as well? And how will humans compete with AI? I'm not worried about it. I, I look at what, and I, at the time, I probably didn't understand that I had some AI and, and machine learning in the Aegis weapon system, but we went from uh, the speed of air warfare being so fast that a human could not, in the old days, we had to take uh, you know some sort of direction from another search radar or something and then latch up with a track radar to be able to track that contact. Well, the speed air warfare got so fast that a human couldn't be in the loop anymore. And what does that mean? The Aegis weapon system was built that it would a human didn't even have to be involved. We could turn everything on full auto. The system would track a contact, already um, determine it was going to be a threat and it could kill the ship, engage it with a missile, and even look and engage it again if it didn't kill it without a human doing anything. Was that a bad thing? No, that was a good thing. That's how we won the Cold War. But what it did do is it freed the human up from a lot of things they didn't need to worry about that could be done with algorithms, condition-based monitoring, sensors, intelligence, and then the human only managed, by exception, things where the radar wasn't working right or there was some anomaly that wasn't that wasn't working correctly. Now the radar operator was was much better at being able to look at the tactical picture and understand what's going on instead of being heads down into running the radar, if that makes sense. So now, instead of worried about all those mundane things that don't really add value, now we're using human senses to manage what they're seeing and understand how to apply what they're seeing to the tactics and the operational situation. So think about your business. How much better would it be to take away? Because people confuse work with work, with getting things done or really doing something. You could be super busy and not achieving anything, or you can let you know the autonomy do things that, that aren't important and let you achieve the things that you need to do by having that data at your fingertips and making better decisions. It seems like uh, people have always been adapting to technology weren't scared them that all these people would lose their jobs. And yet we have more jobs than we can fill still. Right. I mean, it hasn't happened. I'm not afraid of it. I, I think that the technology is going to overcome our inflation and the current situation that we're seeing. We need it for national security. We need to bring manufacturing back to the United States. I think the um, technology that we have today will allow us to bring back all those commodities that we pushed offshore and use our distribution center that's been kind of started with Amazon and accelerated through um, through COVID, continent consumption is really going to drive the next wave. Yeah. Uh, please explain the concept of life cycle management and why leaders need to know about this, especially entrepreneurs who've raised a certain amount of cash and need to get the capital to last until the company's profitable. Yeah, I'll just use an example of... Um, for a manufacturing example, but it works for the military too. We buy capital resources, spend a lot of money on them. 
if you don't maintain them, you can leverage that capital for a while and you'll get away with it. But what you do is you build a, uh, and it's no different than your own personal car. If you got little things going on with your car and you don't work, you know, you just do simple things or you don't even manage them pretty soon, they start compounding and you're building a hidden liability on your balance sheet. Every time you may save some money on your PL. So Lifecycle management is really about measuring how you're managing your capital uh, consistently across your P&L, making sure that you're making those investments consistently, that you're not building a big hidden liability because you see companies that happen all the time. If they have to recapitalize and they've drained every bit of life out of a capital resource because they haven't managed the life um, cycle, then what happens? They don't, they can't afford to recapitalize. So what do they do? they sell or or they get out of the business because they haven't maintained it. So it's a very important thing to understand, especially for capital intensive businesses. But even with people, you've got to understand how you invest in people and not just drain them, you know, continue um, dripping money into them for training, for experiences, moving them up. It, to me, life cycle management works, you know, at all levels. I wonder, this is uh, off topic a bit, but I wonder how uh, how much Elon Musk needs to read your book as he's um, reduced his workforce by over 80% at uh, Twitter. I mean, what, what do you, what's your take if you were advising him about this? Because uh, there must be great systems that were built uh, there to withstand a reduction of 80% of the people. Yeah. Uh, and it's still, it's still running. What, what's your take on that? Well, I, I guess there's a couple thoughts there. If you're not sure really what it takes to run the business and you have all these people around telling you, you don't understand if you don't spend this money and you don't do this, it's all going to fall apart. Well, there's a couple of ways to do that, but you know, and I'm not saying I know what his theory is, but sometimes and, and unfortunately, we've I've had to do this because I could not get the facts and data. We've had to do it as, as leaders. You cut until you almost bleed, right? And then you really get to bottom and you understand, all right, this is the bottom. Now, how do I build it back up where it makes sense? It's it's driving the right behaviors and I'm getting the, you know, getting the um, cost conversion that I'm expecting on, on a solution. But for people that don't run a business, they just keep throwing bodies at it. And, and the worst thing you can have is a business that has a lot of revenue where the cash flow is not an issue. But obviously, he went in there and started seeing, I mean, he understands cash flow better than anybody with Tesla, you know, and how he's he's run his, his businesses. You know, I'm not, again, I'm not defending him, but that could be one of his thoughts. Like, I cut no. him off until I can't run, then I build it back up and really know where I've got to put the resources. I mean, he, uh, you know, clearly he's a smart guy. He also has a PhD as well uh, in some type of engineering. So clearly he must have some kind of under, understanding of uh, what's going on there. But also uh, he's also lost 40% of his revenue. It's gone from $5 billion to $3 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, But maybe, like you said, at Barrett, he's going to go all the way to the point it stops working and then says, okay, now I understand what's needed here. Yeah. I think that makes sense and probably would have been good for him to explain it just the way you explained it. Uh, I think probably would make people feel more comfortable. Well, he's, he's lived his whole life with a bunch of people telling him what he can't do. And, and you know, he everybody would say, oh, Tesla never going to work. Oh, he's losing money now. But I mean, he's forged through it and, uh, and understands, you know, people's opinions <laughs> and then what he's seen. So I don't know. 
evil genius or a madman, one or the other, right? Right. And, and he's got lots, uh, clearly he's got lots of smart people around him that are also giving him input. And like you said, SpaceX is, I think, profitable now. Tesla is profitable. So he knows a lot, a lot about this stuff. We're, we're going to learn from him. We'll see what happens one way or the other. In, in this section about deliberate planning, I don't think I read anything about keeping the competition in mind. How do you figure the competition into the planning or do you worry just about executing flawlessly on your own plan? Yeah, so deliberate planning in the military really is born out of operational planning, which there's several um, standing operational plans against scenarios with with uh, enemies and, and different events that can happen. So you do plan for your competition and then you create that deliberate planning based off from assumptions, planning factors. And then when, if that event actually happens, you've already kind of looked at where, you know, what'll be the tactics, how, how fast we have to move, what are some of the things that we'll have to deal with, with the enemy. Um, it's the same thing in business. You think about you know who am I? What are my competitors? What are they doing? What are the what? What do they have? And then you make your planning based off from those factors, and then it allows you to build a foundation that you can flex off from when you do get in those scenarios. So let's just say your your goal is to overtake you know a certain amount of of market share away from other people. Yes, you definitely plan um, what your competitors do, but your deliberate plans are how you're going to execute based off from those. If that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense because I you always hear football coaches say we only have to focus on what we have to execute mm-hmm. and and know what our strengths are and play to our strengths. I thought very interesting. Uh, there's a Navy organization chart that you use as an example of everyone knowing who is responsible for what. Most organizations, even startups, have them. Is there a difference in the execution and use of the charts in the private sector that they can learn to improve from the military? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's important about the the charts um, is is the roles and responsibilities, and and it's written down. The Navy has a standard operations and regulations manual, and my whole point behind that was there's an org structure, and each group, when you go, whether it's Marines, Navy, Air Force, uh, you know, whatever the agency is, and you talk about a code, whether it's N3, J3, G3, whatever, through the different services, that three code, the way we build our organization, you understand that's the operations team. Their job is to execute on the operational plans. The J6s, the N6s, those that, that those groups are always the groups that are worried about communications, command and control, you know, equipment, things like that, technology. So the way we're organized, if I go to another service, if I go in, you know, joint operations. We already understand how each other operates. We understand when the J3 walks in or when the, you know, the J4 or the N4 or the G4. It, it's kind of interesting how that um, how that org works. And then roles and responsibilities, supported groups, supporting groups. And that's very critical um, in winning in the military. We don't spend time figuring out who's who in the zoo. We can quickly go in and, and, and work together. The, the, I'm just curious about this. The military officers who are successful, who you would say, oh, I really admire their leadership. What, what makes them different uh, than the ones that aren't good leaders? I mean, they may have become commanders, even captains. 
What, what do you see as the difference? Because no way could any organization have nothing but star players, right? Um, one of the things that I think is different between corporate world or civilian world and the military, in a way, we're competing against each other, but we're not. We're all we all get promoted based off from certain things, the way we do business. Um, you can't jump three salary grades, uh, you know, just because, you know, somebody, you know, up in the corporate office and things like that in the military. So you're never worried about training the next level. In fact, that's your job. And to me, the difference that I've seen between the commercial world and the military world, the very best leaders are the ones that go down and spend their energy training and mentoring the lower level people to be better at what they're at and caring that they have those experiences. And you've seen this before where there's leaders that are afraid to let anybody that works for them go up and talk to other senior leaders because then they they may be judged that, hey, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. But the best leaders, whether it's civilian or military, are the ones that promote all their lower level leaders to do all their presentations to be able to stand up and speak for that group um, with, without having to be protected from the other group. And then the other part of it is, is when you in the military, the best leaders that actually do the sort on the people that work for them. So when they have people that aren't performing, they spend the energy to try to fix them or to, you know, say, Hey, maybe this isn't the career for you. And sometimes both, in the military, it happens, but also in the in the corporate world, they pass those people on. They don't spend the energy to fix them. And then those people go someplace else in the corporation and fail or don't do as well as they could. So I think for me, the best leaders are the ones that that do their job in the mentorship and leadership role and really, you know, kind of sort out the people that aren't going to get it done. Because the last thing you want is a, a officer in the military promoted past their ability and the same in the corporate world. Cause it's very apparent when they get promoted past their ability. And when you look at the engagement scores in a factory, or you look at how their leadership styles are, once you get promoted past your ability, it's it, it, you really start behaving in a different way. And it's very apparent to people when that happens. Yeah. Uh, I, I worked at a partner in one of my ventures. He was the former president CEO of American express credit Corp. And he uh, told me I could not keep my office, that I had to be with him in the bullpen with all the other employees so I can hear what was going on. And so I was available to them. He said, nothing like being on the front line. He ran a $32 billion business and never used his own office, just sat with everybody else. And I thought that was a good form of leadership that I learned a lot from. Uh, And he was willing to get his hands dirty and roll up his sleeves at all times. Uh, and me, I liked having my office and the quiet and the thinking about stuff, but he was right about that. So it was a, a lesson well learned there. Yeah. I'm sure that's what you guys learned as well in the Navy. Um, how do you get rid of the silo effect so everyone works together? I mean, you see this in corporations. I mean, that was a big problem when uh, Steve uh, Ballmer ran Microsoft and they did so horribly was that everybody had their own little fiefdom and they were all siloed off. So how do you make that not well, happen? Yeah, I think one, having a common mission to make sure every leader has clarity what their role is in it, supported, supporting groups. Because if every, for instance, I'm just going to take a factory as a perfect example. What I used to tell my team, as I said, they can look at our factory. 
And you may say, I'm the best manufacturing engineer, best supply chain got person, whatever, finance. It doesn't really matter. It's the output of this factory, the quality of it, the reputation of it every day. When we don't deliver quality parts on time, they don't say, well, the maintenance group is great there. or The ops team is fine. It's not their fault. They just say that you failed as an entity. So I think that in the military, it's it's the mission and the reputation of your unit. And I talk about it in the Battle E, the Battle Efficiency Awards. Those are the most important things. And when people are aligned on mission and they understand they're either a supported group or supporting group, and it's not about you, it's about the overall mission. And you can see the whole picture together. Everybody um, operates much better. But when it's when each group feels like they're competing for their um, recognition and their piece of the pie, not seeing that the the team getting recognized is more important than the individual groups. That's where a lot of times in corporate America, you'll see because the way people are um, recognized. You write with so much technology at our disposal that leaders often don't consider how one piece fits with another. How can you plan to minimize the chances of making a multi-million dollar mistake? You write all about how a lot of companies have bought all this you know, amazing technology, but never really considered before how it's all going to integrate into what they're already doing and, and not be a problem. And SAP, that's always been a problem with SAP. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because SAP to me is probably one of the best programs I've ever worked with, but that's because I understand it and I was trained on it. And when you look at these this systems approach, a lot of times what happens with technology is somebody's got a problem and they want to solve that problem. And so what do they do? They go get consultants or they get their CIO or CTO or whoever says, hey, we got to solve this problem. And then they do research and they go out and look at best and breed, Gartner's, Magic Quadrant, all that. And they buy this technology. It's like, that's exactly what we need. That's how we're... But what they they don't think about is no. even if you put the technology on it, if you digitize a crappy process, you just got a crappy digital process. And if you don't understand the capabilities that you need, and this is why the Aegis weapon system helped us win the Cold War, because they built that weapon system. Not They didn't go to Lockheed Martin or whoever and say, hey, I need this weapon system. They said, I need these capabilities. How are we going to build it? And these capabilities will make a difference in um, the Cold War and air warfare. Same in your business. Whether and, and a lot of companies say, hey, you don't understand we're different. For manufacturers or even service companies, you source something, you make it, you deliver it, you plan it, you enable it. It all works the same. But how, what are the capabilities that really make a difference in your organization? If you understand those capabilities that will be transformational, now you can apply technology with the people and converge it properly. And that's the whole reason I wrote the book. You really got to think about how you're going to leverage um, those processes that you have and how you're going to automate them, make them better, take the man out of the loop where you don't need them, where you're causing problems. And when you do that with technology and think about it as a platform, a system, not a single stovepipe, all right, I've got this and I've got that, and I've got this, and we'll just keep screwing these Frankensteins together and hope like hell it works. That's where you get into the kind of what we call the furball of technical debt. And 10 years down the road, you're you're paying all this depreciation and, and you got to start over because it's not working. If you look at multi-factor productivity, just a quick point, 
It's since 2011, it's gone down. Why? Not because we don't have enough technology, because there's too much of it and it's not converged properly. Yeah, I, I and you see that every day and you read about it every day as well. Um, you write when you have the mentality of maintaining uh, equipment for peak performance, you will ultimately spend less money. Doesn't for us as individuals that exercising, watching our weight saves us on medical bills down the road, we're spending money on constant education of the workforce, encourages new innovation, both products and service and operationally. Isn't that what we're really talking about at the end of the day? Absolutely. I mean, again, discipline equals freedom, as my buddy Jocko Willink says. And discipline, whether it's maintaining a piece of equipment to run, you know, the way it needs to, not not just uh, run to fail. Anything that you have like that, maintaining it is much easier to put a little bit of energy in it consistently over time as, as a method than to get way behind, you know, just like you said, for working out for your health. And then sometimes you get so far behind, there's no fixing it, right? You Your discipline goes so bad that there's just no way to resolve it. And, you know, those outcomes are permanent because you can't change them. Could you please talk about the Aiden system and if you could use it for other things besides manufacturing? Yeah, so the Japanese term Andon is... is Andon, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. The paper lights. And we really use that to make manufacturing visual, but it can it can work with anything. It's really about... How do you get alerted um, that you got a problem before that problem impacts your business outcomes? And what we did is we used Andon systems on our assembly lines so that the operators could say, hey, I need help. Something's not working out here. We could solve that problem because if I can solve it in the moment, I at the end of the day, I lose that epoch of time. If I find out after the shift that I didn't make my bill today or I had a quality issue or whatever it is, and if I just would have got alerted during the day, I might have been able to solve that problem very quickly. But when I find out about it after that epic of time is gone, there's nothing I can do about it. So it's really about how do you use a system to alert you, to visualize it, you know, to uh, to drive better business outcomes. Because again, an andon is really about measuring actual versus plan or speed of advance. Hey, I'm supposed to, the line's supposed to be running. When it's not running, I, I send up a light, I send an alert, I send an email, whatever it is. Um, it's sort of like you're, uh, think about your stock trading. You, you want to buy a pers- certain piece of stock or sell it at a certain time. You set up your uh, your rules or your doctrine in your system and it, and it alerts you. It either automatically does it or tells you, hey, you might want to think about doing it at this point. It's kind of the same concept. I remember when Six Sigma Black Belt, uh, which you wrote, you uh, earned, congrats, uh, was the rage in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Is it still important today and why? I think it's more important than ever because it, at the end of the day, a lot of people probably bastardized it a little bit and and, and shaped it the way they needed to. Uh, and, and you didn't get the outcomes because what happened is a lot of times they'd go out, do something, and they would solve a problem, but it didn't stay in control. And it's really about reducing variation in a process regardless. Six Sigma at its core is all about measuring variation and reducing it and limiting it. Just like a Toyota car, they reduce variation, the quality's higher, that's what you want. But when you look at today's world and the opportunity we have with Industry 4.0 and Industrial Internet of Things, now, where those Six Sigma projects in the past measured something, 
you couldn't keep it in control because it required somebody to constantly put energy into it. Now you can use these tools. Once you find something that you want to improve, you can use these digital tools again to, to measure it and let you know when it's not staying in control so that you, you can manage it better. Um, so I think Six Sigma is more important than ever. We always say that we design solutions, automated solutions to design, measure, and analyze anything that you're doing in a process, condition-based monitoring, and then to use analytics to tell you when you're out of control and that you need to, uh, a human needs to get back in and, and manage something. Uh, what is condition-based monitoring and how can an organization adapt it? So I got a great story I always use about a BMW that I had. I had an X5. I was driving up the road. Condition-based monitoring is all about looking at a, a standard set of measurements. And, and when I have something that goes out of tolerance, doing something about it. So I was driving up the interstate one day, and all of a sudden, the, the car started slowing down uh, metering, they call it, to uh, to 45 miles an hour. At the same time, not long after, I pull over. I'm like, what the heck? A voice comes over the speaker and says, Mr. Gruber, we just noticed that uh, your car slowed down. It's due to the frequency of your electric water pump, the electrical frequency. There's something going on with it. Um, you could turn your car back off, turn it back on. It should drive fine. Um, we've got a new water pump for you uh, in Boiling Greens. I was on uh, Highway 65 coming up from uh, Alabama going into Kentucky. And if you can make it there, if not, call us. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we got it. We'll get you a tow truck, but they're ready to go. So why is that important? That's really about condition-based monitoring. I understand a failure mode, or I understand something I want to measure, and I measure it, and then I do something with that data when it when it goes out of tolerance before it causes a major problem, and uh, it makes you know makes either maintenance or supply chains whatever you're trying to measure. If you condition-based monitoring it. You can say you got a core engine and I put a measurement on top of it. And then I, I have sets of standards or conditions that I want upper lower spec limits, so to speak. And then when I get close to those or anomalies happen, I alert people to do something about it before it causes a failure. Please explain uh, what Jeff Bezos calls day one and day two companies and why this is important for today's leaders to know about it. I think this is so critical um, if you haven't read the day one and day two. Day one companies are the companies that are going to survive because they're focused on speed advance type of measurements. And what he talks about is when you become a day two company, you start getting focused on a bunch of minutia that's not driving you to your, um, your outcomes or where you want to be. And then pretty soon what happens is a day two company, people start focusing on doing things that aren't directly connected to making, you know, you execute on your mission. And pretty soon those become the most important things and people lose focus on what you're really trying to do. And when you look at Amazon, it's all about the customer all the time. And so day one companies really think about things different than day twos. And when you look at what industry 4.0 can do for you in these tools, you really got to understand what your speed of advance is, which Bezos does. And how do you always measure those things and drive your business to be a day one company? Because when you're day two company, you're dying. You're focused on the wrong things. What kind of mundane tasks still need to be automated? And do you see some entrepreneurial opportunities as well? Like, can we can we make some money off of these things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's companies doing robotic process automation out there. I mean, we're making money off from it. Our whole job is build that right digital core, create the right engine, use it properly, and then 
create tools on top of it that allows you to get rid of those mundane tasks. For instance, I'll just use an example. If I can use a system, a, man, a warehouse management system and put real-time location tracking on it, I can use tools to automate the inventory and automate a lot of transactions that I rely on humans to do that now are automated. One, I'll get less problems in the system with my inventories because I don't have the humans um, possibly in there not executing um, you know, their processes the way I need them. But also I'm not spending the energy of people having to go out and inventory things because I'm using a system to automatically inventory it, move it, and do all that. Those things free people up to do more important things, solve problems, drive innovation instead of just driving everyday tasks that really don't provide any value. Anything that you can automate to take the man out of the loop where you don't need them, you're going to get better business outcomes um, anyway. I said keep worrying about the jobs for people on the blue collar area, you know, that don't have an education. And now even people who have college education, they're automating accounting and everything else to where folks who never worried about having a job, that's the case. Do you think people are planning and figuring this out? Because I deal a lot with venture capital people and a lot of them are not really thinking about the average person just thinking, hey, this is more efficient. I can make more money and they end up making more money. But you can't have a whole society full of, um, you know, ticket takers at a um, a movie theater or whatever, you know, where they just can't, people are not making enough money to survive. Right. Well, I think that, you know, that just like any other technology through time, I mean, you think about the carriage makers, you think about, you know, you can go back wherever you want in that epoch of time and technologies that took over and people, you know, they they uh, found new jobs and new places that never really panned out to the uh, the dilemma that people think. I think pendulums swing back and forth. I don't think that machines will ever take over everything for people, but there are things that machines are better at than people that they can do. And we need, in this country, if you look at where we're at with our interest rates, it's kind of like the late 70s. And we didn't really win um, over the inflation because of anybody's you know, fiscal policy, although it helped. PCs made a difference, right? It made us more productive. And PCs didn't take everybody's jobs, but they sure did a lot of things that you know, punch card readers and people doing the punch cards and all that didn't have to do anymore. And I think you're going to see the same thing. There's so many jobs not being filled right now that we need um, this technology for. But also look at the demographics. If you look at even China's peak, they thought they were going to be peak, um, you know, population by 2030. They peaked last year. So there's not going to be the people to work in these jobs anyway. And I think it'll all you know, it'll all balance out and, and new opportunities will come in place that this these new these technologies are taking over and make us exponentially better and more efficient and productive at what we're doing. Uh, as uh, much hacking as goes on, what concerns do you have that an organization's factory and operational system can be hijacked because false information or changes can be made that create overabundance shortages or getting the wrong parts and crippling the whole company? Yeah, I mean, that's a big deal, especially with Industry 4.0. With opportunity to get those exponential improvements in productivity by connecting everything from, you know, the level zero to level six and the ISA 95 stack or the shop floor to top floor, however, IT to OT, all these buzzwords, you do create more surface area um, for 
different cyber events. But the key piece is, is that as we develop these things, we have to push cyber-informed engineering back. We know it's there. We can't be reactive with it. It's sort of like being proactive or predictive on, on things. We've got to push all of that back into the engineering and into the products before we create them so that people can't you know, get into there and, and leverage those um, those surfaces for that type of um, type of events. So as we go forward, it's going to take a lot more proactive um, cybersecurity thoughts on the front end, the engineering of it, just like engineering safety and engineering quality. And it's, it's going to be the, the same sort of um, methodology that's going to overcome those situations. Yeah, I think it's a big concern it, um, that these things get get hijacked and destroy the company or it, uh, put us at a definite disadvantage as we're seeing our systems get hacked on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance companies, because of hacking, would find technical efficiency isn't worth as much as safety of information and people? Yeah, the safety word is there, the big S word. And, and that's where Sometimes, um, and you can go back all through technology and look, oh, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be the first to be second or whatever you want to say. I'm going to be safe over here. There's a certain level of safety that, yes, you've got to be smart and proactive about it. But if you think that you can make yourself perfectly safe and insulate yourself, you might be able to do that. But that's like me. Can I be safe in my life? Yeah. If I live in a cave and I never drive and I never do anything and I never leave the house, I can be perfectly safe, but what what am I going to you know do by that? So I think companies have to balance that safety with where they're at in the technology. For the companies that lean forward, they may you know induce risk, but if they learn how to manage the risk and get through it, they're going to be so far ahead of these other com- companies that play it safe that those other companies may not be able to catch up with them, and they're going to be left behind anyway. So what kind of knowledge are today and tomorrow's naval commanders going to need? And what about our CEOs of companies? What are being who are being overwhelmed with all the technology efficiency choices? What are these folks going to need to be able to keep up with all of this? Yeah, obviously the education and system. I think systems training and thought leadership is going to be the most important thing for any leader, understanding how systems of systems work together and how to manage those layers. Um, I Again, like I said, I was, a, funny enough, my position was systems test officer. I had to make 253 different pieces of software work together. So my mind constantly, and this is where I brought it out of the military, was systems thinking, how to make all these systems at the different layers work together to produce those outcomes that we need. Because I could never go up to the captain and say, I don't I don't know why the missile didn't shoot. We had to make it work together at those layers. And I think the leaders of the future, and I and I know the military's training them, everybody had to go through that the type of training I did that were leaders, you know, whether they're nuclear officers, they have to know everything about a ship. That's going to make the difference is they're trained in the technology. They understand how to use it as another tool. Um, the worst thing that can happen to a company is when the leaders don't understand how SAP works. SAP is a powerful tool, but when they say that's something that somebody else does, I don't need to understand how that system works. That's where you get systemic failures um, with technology. So I think any leader coming up these days must understand how all these systems integrate and work together. Even though you've been out of the Navy, gosh, it's got to be incredible for you, right? Like 14 years. 
uh, that you've been out of the Navy. And uh, you, we always read about how China is going to surpass our Navy. Should we have to worry about that? I mean, how prepared are we? I mean, do you still interact with some of your colleagues? And what's your comfort level here? I mean, I'm comfortable. Obviously, they're spending more money. They, they have stolen a lot of technology. Now, stealing technology is an interesting thing. You may be able to steal technology, but do you understand how to leverage it and use it and have you put it to test? I still think, you know, our services, the way we train, the way our systems work together, there's always hiccups on the continuum. There's been a couple, you know, a few years ago with some collisions at sea. But I think by and far, just the way our systems are put together and how our people are trained that, you know, going even toe to toe with similar capabilities and weapon systems, we will always be able to overcome because of our logistics and our intelligence um, systems are better at giving us situational awareness and then people being trained how to leverage that data together um, quickly, faster than the opponent. Cause that's, that's it in business. The people that have the, the intelligence that can make decisions faster, better are the ones that win um, normally, right? Marty, thank you so much again. Thank you for service to country. Thank you for writing this book. It's an awesome book. And thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mark. I hope this was uh, helpful and informational for your uh, for your clients. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.